This is part two of the Michigan murders, an update and re-release of these early episodes ahead of our coverage of the murder of Jane Mixer. If you haven't listened to part one, check that out before listening to this episode. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Ronald Reagan is best known for being the 40th president of the United States. But before he was in politics, he was an actor, and he made dozens of movies for Warner Brothers Studio, going all the way back to the 1930s. In the 1940s and 50s, he was president of the Screen Actors Guild. Serving in a leadership role helped him decide to run for public office. Reagan was elected governor of California in 1966, taking office in 1967, and he would serve until 1975. During his second term as governor, he was faced with an unusual dilemma, to extradite or not to extradite. It's not often that I can link a U.S. president and a serial killer, but today, we're going to do just that. Before we can talk about the decision that Reagan faced, we're headed north, to Canada, to 1947, when John Norman Chapman was born. His parents, Loretta and Richard Chapman, already had two children— making John the baby of the family. Unfortunately, Richard was suffering physically and emotionally from his experiences in World War II. He'd lost a leg in battle, and once the war was over, he struggled with depression and addiction. Unable to pull himself together, he abandoned his family. Loretta soon remarried, but her second marriage didn't last. She found herself twice divorced with three young children. Hoping that a change of scene would improve her lot, she moved herself and her children from Ontario, Canada, to the Detroit area, where she met and married William Collins. Collins adopted her three children, and their surname was changed from Chapman to Collins. Listeners, it seems like Loretta's man-picker was on the fritz because William was physically abusive and a drinker. He was known to beat Loretta and their children, and she would leave him in 1956. Loretta supported her family working as a waitress, and she was a hard worker. She did her best to provide for her children. She sent them to parochial schools. When her youngest, John, graduated from St. Clement's Catholic High School, he followed his older brother, Jerry, to college at Central Michigan University. While at Central, John went out for the football team and played defensive back. We're going to hear from John Collins, These are excerpts from an interview he did in the late 1980s with the Detroit-based Kelly & Company television show. I was always out on my bike playing sports someplace. I'd go from baseball to basketball to football. I think that's the only thing that got me through high school. My mother said if I didn't get good grades, I couldn't play sports. So That's probably the only reason I even graduated. (laughs) At the end of his freshman year, Collins transferred to Eastern Michigan University in Ypsilanti, but he didn't go out for football. Being an Ipsy, as the natives say, put him closer to his aunt and uncle and much closer to his mom in Centerline. Being an Ipsy also started him on a very dark path. In 1967, people had not yet heard of Charles Manson. John Wayne Gacy was managing a fast food restaurant in Waterloo, Iowa, and Ted Bundy was a college student at the University of Washington. But 1967, 
this is when John Norman Collins allegedly started killing co-eds. It was a sweltering summer day in July of 67 when his first victim, Mary Fleezar, disappeared. And it would be almost a year before the co-ed killer struck again. July of 68, college student Joan Shell's body was found. She'd been last seen hitchhiking from Ypsilanti to her boyfriend's apartment in Ann Arbor. In the summer of 68, Collins was questioned by police and asked for an alibi. He said he'd been at home with his mother in Centraline the weekend that Joan was taken. He also mentioned that his uncle was a Michigan State Police trooper. John Collins was a clean-cut, respectful young man, and police took him at his word. March 21, 1969, a law student at the University of Michigan, Jane Mixer, was found strangled and shot, her body draped across a gravestone at a cemetery in Wayne County. Days earlier, she'd posted a rideshare request to the board. She wanted to head back to Muskegon, on the west side of the state, and share with her parents the news of her recent engagement. At the time, police weren't certain that she'd been killed by the same man who killed Fleezar and Shell. The first victims were sexually assaulted. Mixer wasn't. The method of death was different as well. Mixer had been shot. Police needed to step up their game because the co-ed killer, he was escalating. No one could imagine that in 2004, another man would be convicted of Mixer's murder using controversial DNA evidence. And we will be talking about this. We will be talking about the murder of Jane Mixer and the trial of Gary Leiterman in an upcoming episode. On March 25th, the brutally beaten and sexually assaulted body of 16-year-old Marilyn Skelton was discovered. The killer is escalating, and a task force was put in place. Tips were logged, sorted, and followed up on. Unfortunately, because the bodies were left out in the open, evidence was washed away by rain or lost to the elements. Pictures that I've come across of the investigation show law enforcement using all the tools at their disposal, including making molds of footprints and tire tracks. They collected fiber evidence, and they tested biological fluids to glean information about the perpetrator. In April, the partially clothed body of 13-year-old Don Bassam was found by the roadside. The first week of June, the body of 21-year-old University of Michigan graduate student Alice Callum was discovered. She'd been stabbed, assaulted, and shot. Seeing that Callum, like Jane Mixer before her, had been shot, police added Mixer's name to the list of victims. The co-ed killer had claimed the lives of six young women, but he wasn't done, and his need was not sated. While police were chasing down leads, trying to locate and stop the co-ed killer, Collins decided to get out of town for a bit, especially after the police looked at him a second time. Collins was no longer certain that his clean-cut appearance, Catholic school background, and good manners were enough. And again, he brought up his uncle, a Michigan State trooper, and assured police that his uncle would vouch for him. If the police had the resources to dig a little deeper into Collins, who was one of hundreds of college students they talked to that summer, they would have learned that the good guy act was just that. It was an act. Collins was surly, aggressive, and a known thief. He'd been kicked out of a fraternity for his behavior. Collins also had a couple money-making schemes going on in addition to his part-time job. These schemes included burglary, larceny, and writing bad checks. But instead of being jailed on suspicion of murder, Collins would take a road trip with his friend, 24-year-old Andrew Manuel. Collins borrowed his mother's gray Oldsmobile Cutlass 
and the two used false names and wrote a bad check to rent a camper. They hitched it to the back of the Cutlass and headed west to California. For this trip, Manuel left his wife, Susie, behind as he and Collins set out. The women of Washtenaw County are safe for now. Collins is in California, enjoying warm sunshine and meeting new girls. 24-year-old Andrew Manuel was originally from Salinas, California, giving the travelers a base to operate from when they arrived in the Golden State. They parked their 17-foot trailer behind Manuel's grandparents' house and set about enjoying themselves. Eventually, Collins crossed paths with Nancy Albrecht, a Salinas teenager. They saw each other a few times during his stay, enough for her to tell people that she was dating John Collins. When Albrecht told her friend, Roxy Ann Phillips, about the college student from Michigan, Phillips wanted to meet him. Phillips, who lived with her mother in a suburb of Portland, Oregon, was visiting the area on vacation for a few weeks that summer. The evening of June 30th, a neighbor spotted Roxy getting into a gray Oldsmobile with Michigan plates. They noted the red floral print outfit she was wearing, and this was the last time that she would be seen alive. Her body would be found July 2nd in a dump near Carmel, California. She'd been sexually assaulted and beaten. The belt from her red pattern dress was tight around her neck. One earring was gone, and she was still wearing her sandals. These elements matched the work of Michigan's co-ed killer. Roxy's friends in California came forward to say that she had a date with a guy from Michigan. His name was John, and he was studying education at Eastern Michigan University. A neighbor of the home she was staying in told law enforcement that she'd seen Roxy, dressed in a red floral print dress and sandals, get into a silver or gray car with Michigan plates the night that she disappeared. Manuel and Collins left California on July 1st, the day after Roxy vanished. They abandoned the trailer on the property behind Manuel's grandparents' house, and his grandparents were hurt that they departed without so much as a farewell. When police examined the trailer, they found nothing, no blood, no prints, and no sign of a struggle. In fact, every surface in the trailer was wiped clean. I have to admit, I'm curious what Collins and Manuel talked about on the long drive from California to Michigan. Now, Manuel wasn't a good guy. He was wanted for theft, writing bad checks, and other unsavory activities. But nothing like the murders, not even close. He appeared to be a thief, not a killer. The safety that the women of Washtenaw County enjoyed in June was coming to an end. The co-ed killer had returned, and he would take his last known victim in July, and her name was Karen Sue Bynaman. 18-year-old Bynaman was tiny, 5 foot 1 inch tall, and 96 pounds. But like Collins, she was studying education at Eastern Michigan University. If you recall from part one of this series, it was Bynaman's body that would be found in a ravine and replaced with a mannequin in the hopes of luring the perpetrator into a trap where police could catch him. But the trap didn't work. And it was a tip from Eastern Michigan University police officer Larry Mathewson that brought Collins to the attention of law enforcement. He'd seen Collins on his Triumph motorcycle riding through Ypsilanti on the afternoon of July 23rd with a petite brunette on the back of his bike. Mathewson's tip, paired with information from Collins' uncle, Michigan State Police Corporal Like, and evidence taken from the Like home on Roosevelt Avenue in Ypsilanti, that's what built the case against Collins. 
this information was supplemented with testimony from Diana Gosh, the wig shop owner who followed Vitamin out of her store and watched her take a ride on the back of a Triumph motorcycle with a dark-haired young man. Once Collins was arrested in Michigan, law enforcement went through his mother's gray Oldsmobile, the car he'd taken to California. Michigan State Police crime scene technician Ken Christensen, who had worked on many of the Michigan murders, analyzed the blood that they found and the bits of fabric. But the evidence didn't make sense to him because he couldn't link any of it to the Michigan victims. A phone call from law enforcement in California would change everything. The type O blood and red fabric in the car was a match to their victim, 17-year-old Roxanne Phillips. Detectives in California sent a piece of fabric from the belt that was around Phillips' neck when she was found, and it was a scientific match to the bits of fabric found in the cutlass. A search of Collins' residence turned up a woman's brown sweater. There were several hairs on the sweater, and a crime scene analyst in Michigan contacted Oregon, where Phillips had been buried, asking that her body be exhumed so they could get hair samples from the victim. And once the hair samples arrived back in Michigan, they were matched to hairs found on the sweater in Collins' home. The case against Collins and the death of Roxy Ann Phillips was solid, but that did not help detectives in Michigan. They wanted Collins for the co-ed killings, all of them. When Collins' friends were interviewed, Arnold Davis, a man who described himself as Collins' best friend, said that John had thrown away a box of women's items, including clothing, jewelry, and a blanket, after he was interviewed a second time by police. Collins had reminded Davis that the two of them were out riding motorcycles together the afternoon of July 23rd. This was the day that Bynaman was at the wig shop and told the store owner, Diana Gosh, that she'd done two foolish things in her life. She'd bought a wig and took a ride from a stranger. While Collins was a suspect in the co-ed murders, the strongest evidence against him was for the death of Oregon native Roxy Ann Phillips in California. In fact, a Monterey County grand jury would indict Collins for the murder of Phillips. So Governor Ronald Reagan negotiated with Michigan's governor, William Milliken, to have Collins extradited to California so they could try him there. And the attorney general from each state jockeyed for authority over the case. But Milliken put his foot down, Yes, California had the death penalty, but Collins was suspected in seven murders. They were not going to let him go. California could have Collins after Michigan was done with him. And guess what? The most expensive trial in Washtenaw County history is about to begin. And listeners, Arnold Davis may have fancied himself John Collins' best friend, but when the heat for the murders and the burglaries became too much, it was Andrew Manuel a 24-year-old Filipino-American that he chose to leave town with. Word on the street is that Collins and Manuel subsidized their income by breaking into homes around campus. Could they be the source of the break-in at Alice Callum's apartment the day of her funeral? Only after Collins was taken into custody for the murder of 18-year-old Karen Sue Bynaman and California law enforcement looked at him in the murder of 17-year-old Roxy Ann Phillips, did they began looking at Andrew Manuel. He had returned to Michigan with Collins the first week of July. Not liking the heat that his friend was facing, Manuel left Michigan, again headed west, this time to Arizona. He was picked up by the FBI in Phoenix and returned to Michigan. Now, they had nothing on him for the murders, but he was implicated in the bad check scheme involving the travel trailer. So a plea was worked out. 
he was given probation and a $100 fine with the understanding that he would testify for the prosecution against his friend. On August 1st, Collins was arraigned in the murder of 18-year-old Karen Bynaman and held without bond. On August 14th, 1969, they had a pretrial hearing before Judge Edward Deke at the Ypsilanti District Courthouse. At these hearings, Collins was represented by court-appointed attorney Richard Ryan. Ryan worked hard to get the trial moved out of Ypsilanti, and he also filed motions to suppress evidence, but these requests were denied. The Ypsilanti courthouse was small, and it was packed. Chester Fleazar, the father of the first victim, wasn't able to get inside to view the preliminary hearing. He spoke to the press, telling them that he felt sorry for Collins, because the young man is clearly not well. Meanwhile, Sandra Fleazar, the daughter and sister of Mary Fleazar, knew that she'd seen Collins before. He looked familiar to her. She may have recognized him from his job at the Montgomery Ward department store. Collins and Arnold Davis worked at the department store together. And I need to backtrack here to part one of this series. Remember Marilyn Skelton, the 16-year-old girl from Romulus who sustained the really severe beating with a belt? She was last seen hitchhiking in front of Arborland Mall, which, in 1969, had a Montgomery Ward store, which is likely the store that Collins was working at. I would really like to go back and see if the timeline fits. Was Collins at the mall, perhaps working the day that Marilyn Skelton was murdered? At the preliminary hearing, several people were called to testify. The first was Sherry Green, a friend of Bynaman's. She testified to having lunch with her at Downing Hall that day. During lunch, Bynaman said she needed to walk to town and pick up a wig. Green declined to accompany her because she had schoolwork to do, and the two parted company around 12.20. Next on the stand was Washtenaw County Sheriff Douglas Harvey. He told of how Bynaman's body was found, that a professor and his wife were out for a walk when they spotted the remains, and called law enforcement. She was identified quickly because she'd been reported missing on the 23rd, and his department was looking for her. Next on the stand was Dr. Hendricks, the medical examiner who had performed six of the autopsies. He was careful only to speak of Bynaman's case. He told of the brutal beating she'd endured, how her body had been assaulted, tied up, mutilated. When Hendricks said she had type A blood that matched the blood in the basement of the like home, attorney Ryan thought he had the doctor and asked how reliable blood typing is after an extended period of time. Hendricks replied they'd been able to obtain blood typing from Egyptian mummies. This shut Ryan up quickly. Testimony was offered by nine witnesses that day, and Deke ordered Collins to stand trial for the murder of Karen Sue Bynaman. He was not offered bond. He would be in jail until the trial. Collins and his attorney still hoped for a venue change that would get the trial out of Washtenaw County, but they did not get their wish. However, the trial was moved to the Washtenaw County building in Ann Arbor from the Ypsilanti Courthouse, primarily because the county building only required a dozen law enforcement officers to secure it instead of the 30 that were needed in Ypsilanti. Security around Collins was tight. People were searched as they entered the courthouse. No one wanted vigilante justice in their town. Defense attorney Richard Ryan worked to establish a strategy for Defendant Collins, starting with a polygraph examination performed by an independent examiner, with the results sealed and available only to the defense. Now, polygraphs, we don't like them, we don't think of them as useful, but in 1969, 
they were considered an important and valuable tool, which is why it's worth mentioning that he took one. Prosecutor Delhi agreed to this, and he allowed the exam to be administered. Once the results were ready, Ryan Collins and his mother Loretta and Judge Conlon discussed the findings in chambers, with Ryan recommending an insanity defense for his young client. Loretta Collins was not having this. She did not want the insanity defense, not at all, and she fired Ryan on the spot. This brought about another delay as they sought new counsel. Loretta Collins, John's mother and staunch defender, helped secure the services of Joseph Loisel. Loisel was a well-known criminal attorney, and he had defended the likes of Vito and Tony Giacalone, whose names you may remember from an early episode, You've Got an Uncle in the Furniture Business, Joshua Dorr, from 2016. Loisel, who at this time is in his 50s, and he is described as a grandfatherly type, was joined by Neil Fink, a 5'7", 30-year-old attorney not too many years older than John Collins. While Loisel was the elder statesman, cool, measured, diplomatic, and firm, Fink was described as determined, abrasive, and jabbing. They made a good pair. Wanting a skilled defense lawyer to work on behalf of her youngest child was an expensive endeavor. I've read that Loretta Collins remortgaged her home to pay for these attorneys. On the other side of the aisle was William F. Delhi, the Washtenaw County prosecutor with over 20 years of experience. Delhi was known to be methodical, organized, and above all, he was fair. Delhi worked tirelessly to build a tight circumstantial case around Collins. Delhi was assisted by assistant prosecutor Booker T. Williams, a slender African-American man with a Southern accent. During the winter of 1969 and 1970, the case was plagued with delays, including a mid-February heart attack suffered by Loisel, delaying his work on the case until April 1st. The trial would finally begin with jury selection on June 2nd, 1970. These murders were so high profile that it was hard to find someone who wasn't familiar with the case, or if they were familiar with the case, they felt they could be objective. Finding a dozen people along with two alternates was proving to be a challenge. First, everybody had heard of the case. Then, if they seemed like they could be impartial, they had ties to the case in some way. One young man who looked like a promising juror had a brother who was an Ann Arbor police officer and a sister who worked for the Washtenaw County Sheriff. Another potential juror was a neighbor of Booker T. Williams, the assistant prosecutor, and he was removed for that reason. Throw in the potential for a multi-week trial and sequestering jurors, finding people who were competent and capable to seat became a challenge, and jury selection took nearly as long as the trial itself. With an extra delay provided by the July 4th holiday, the trial didn't start until July 9th, 1970. Prosecutor Delhi decided early on that he would only pursue charges against Collins for the murder of Karen Sue Bynaman. Collins was the primary suspect in all of the co-ed killings. The strongest case was in the most recent murder. Delhi didn't want to risk confusing a jury or losing any of his evidence against Collins on a technicality. His approach was simple, direct, and effective. But it was also heartbreaking for the families of the other victims who also wanted justice for their loved ones. The primary focus of the prosecution was the whereabouts of Collins between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. on July 23rd. Four women testified they'd spoken to Collins that day. The women that knew him identified him by name. The woman that didn't know him described his appearance, his clothing, his motorcycle, 
and the time and location of their conversation. Prosecutors were able to put him in Ypsilanti and the area of the wig shop on his motorcycle on the day that Bynaman was taken. The description given by his acquaintances and the women he'd tried to pick up, including a high school student waiting for her mother, matched the description provided by Diana Gosh at the wig shop, a handsome, dark-haired young man in his early 20s, wearing a striped t-shirt and riding a shiny motorcycle with a square side mirror. The evidentiary side of the case was focused on the blood in the basement of his uncle's home, and how the hair clippings recovered from the basement were a match to the hair clippings found inside of the victim's body. The defense tried to paint the hairs as coming from the wig shop she'd been at the afternoon of her death. A criminologist from Massachusetts who specializes in analyzing hair evidence spent two days on the stand being questioned and cross-examined. The jury even went on a field trip of sorts. On August 4th, they were taken from the courthouse to the like home on Roosevelt Avenue in Ypsilanti. Once there, they were given a tour of the basement with attorneys from the prosecution and the defense overseeing the visit. The trial itself lasted almost a month, with the jury deliberating for several days before finding Collins guilty as charged, and he was immediately transferred to the South Michigan prison in Jackson. No matter how impartial you are, I am confident that the fact that the murders ceased after Collins was taken into custody influenced the jury. Once Collins was arrested, there were no more battered bodies dumped on the roadside. The murders stopped when they arrested you no, and they took didn't. you in. And it would be similar. The murders stopped. No, they didn't. I don't think they did. And I don't think you one person. You don't think they did? Tell me. Well, from what I understand, they didn't. If any reporter had ever followed up and checked the police files or the hospital records or followed the news articles after the trial they would find that there were still murders. There's still murders. I just showed you the article in the paper. There are still murders going on. Yes, but shortly after that, those types of murders stopped. Okay, now what do you mean by types? See, they referred to these as co-ed killings. Now, there's at least three or four of them that weren't co-eds. So even that is a fallacy. Well, they said that there some, was a some, similarity. There was okay. all. There was always sexual abuse. There, there was. There no, was no, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. Some people. Four out of seven, I believe. And oh, okay. What? Well, okay. That okay. shows a dissimilarity. If you if 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 you're robbing stores, you're going to follow the same thing that's working for you. You're not going to shoot one person, stab another, strangle another, bludgeon another. I mean. Some are raped, some aren't raped, some are fully clothed. Or an object some were stuck up the vagina. That sounds like the Boston Strangler thing. It could be copycat killings. You know, it's something that, you know, there's no way that I would be convinced that one person ever did that. And it would be similar to uh, a house on a corner and they're selling crack. And then all of a sudden you walk down the street, say you've been walking down the street for every day for a year and people going in and out selling crack. And all of a sudden you come by and you look in the house and it's empty. Does that mean the crack stopped? No, they just moved to another corner. And as a side note, the full name, home address, and occupations of each juror were printed in the newspaper. The jurors ranged in age from 28 to 71. There were six men and six women. Nine of them had a college degree or a college background. Many of the women on the jury were homemakers and married to people who worked at one of the universities. After the verdict was announced, Loisel and Fink immediately announced their plans to appeal. Delhi and the defense lawyers praised Judge Conlin for his excellent work overseeing the trial. 
As Collins' attorneys began the appeals process, Governor Reagan in California reminded them that his state planned to extradite Collins to the West Coast and try him in the murder of Roxanne Phillips. Reagan was willing to wait and see what the outcomes of Collins' appeal would be before pushing for extradition. While Michigan only had him for life in prison on one murder, the fallback was a trial in California, a death penalty state for the Phillips case. And, ironically, the strongest evidence against Collins was in the death of Roxanne Phillips. He had brought so much evidence with him to Michigan in his mother's car. The tireless crime lab techs led by Ken Christensen had carefully curated the evidence in the Phillips case. Hoping to save his client's life, Fink fought against extradition until California backed off. I'm certain that the high-profile Manson murders and trial at the end of 1970 into 1971 pushed the Phillips case out of the spotlight. Collins being sent away on a mandatory life sentence isn't the end of the story. In 1977, Collins changed his name back to his birth name, John Norman Chapman, and claimed his dual citizenship. His goal was transfer to a prison in Canada, the country of his birth, where he would eventually be eligible for parole. In 1977, Collins, and sorry, not sorry, I'm not calling him Chapman, was transferred from Jackson to the prison in Marquette. Marquette is located in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. It was at this time that he gave an interview about the trial. He said that the prosecution led by Delhi and Williams withheld evidence that would have cleared him. He denied ever meeting Bynaman and said he never gave her a ride on his bike. Collins also said that the jury foreman, William Billmeyer, disliked him and fought passionately in the jury room for a guilty verdict, bullying those who wanted to vote not guilty into going along with his wishes. Collins condemned the books and movies being written about the case. Collins also expressed a love and respect for his mother, Loretta, and gratitude for Father Pat of St. Thomas Catholic Church in Ann Arbor. Father Pat provided support and counsel to himself and his family during the trial. For his praise of the church and Father Pat, once he was in prison, Collins was not known to attend religious services. In 1979, Collins was part of a plan to escape from Marquette Prison. He and other inmates dug a two-foot-wide tunnel beneath the prison. The 19-foot tunnel, which was still 25 feet short of their goal, was discovered by a guard. Collins and his co-conspirators were punished. In 1980, Collins returned to Ann Arbor after falling in the exercise yard and sustaining a serious head injury. He was airlifted to the University of Michigan Hospital, where he was treated and released back to prison. In 1981, Collins and his attorneys lobbied hard for him to be transferred to a prison in Ontario, Canada, the place of his birth, where he would serve out the remainder of his life sentence. In Canada, a life sentence is no more than 25 years. If Collins could make the transfer, he could be eligible for release around 1992. When Washtenaw County Prosecutor Delhi got wind of his plan, he, along with Bynaman's family, started a campaign to block the transfer. I'd like to think that if Collins' plan had gained traction, California would have again pressed for Collins to be tried in Monterey County in the death of Roxanne Phillips. Sometime in the late 1970s, the Bynaman family submitted a written request that if Collins is ever eligible for parole, for transfer to a lower security prison, or if he escapes, that they would be notified immediately. In the spring of 1985, as Collins approached 15 years in prison, 
he was caught with hacksaw blades and a drill bit in his bunk. He was moved to segregation for the infraction, spending 23 of 24 hours a day in his cell in the high-risk unit at Marquette Prison. In 1986, Collins played the citizenship card again. His attorney, at this point he was represented by William Dobreth of Warren, brought up that Collins' grandparents, aunts and uncles, all lived in Canada. The article in 1986 describes Collins as the prime suspect in four of six unsolved murders of young women in Washtenaw County between 1967 and 1969. I'm curious which two murders they found were outliers. I'm sure Mixer's death was one. And as I mentioned previously, in 2004, another man would be found guilty in her death. Was Skelton the other? It was long thought that the 16-year-old Skelton was killed over a drug debt, but I've never seen any mention of DNA testing in these cases, except for Mixer's. I wonder what the results would be if they went back and tested that evidence. A news article in 1987 describes Collins as a difficult inmate and, quote, unemployable. A far cry from the 22-year-old who hoped to work in the prison hospital, Collins maintains his innocence and says that the prosecutor had to arrest someone and chose him. In 1988, he did a television interview from Marquette Prison. This was done by the Kelly & Company television show out of Detroit. The show was hosted by husband and wife teen John Kelly and Marilyn Turner. Collins did the same old overzealous prosecutor, crooked sheriff, song and dance that he'd done in the newspaper interviews. And if you would like to see this interview, you can find it on YouTube. Also in 1988, Collins was disciplined for having a 27-foot length of rope hidden in his cell. He protested saying that the rope was a craft item, but the craft coordinator said there was no such material being used in classes. Over the last 20 years, Collins has been quiet. Perhaps he's resigned to his fate, living out his days in the Upper Peninsula at the prison in Marquette. He hasn't spoken much about the case, and much to the frustration of many people, he's never agreed to or participated in a psychiatric evaluation or workup. As I mentioned in Part 1, Colin's early childhood was one of disturbance and upheaval from his father's abandonment of the family to his mother's subsequent remarriages, one of them to an abusive man. Then there is Colin's hatred of and disdain for women, and we're left wondering why. His siblings, Gail and Jerry, have lived their lives quietly, out of the public eye. Loretta Collins defended her son tirelessly. However, she did not include him in her will, and noted in the will that John knew why she'd excluded him. Loretta died in 1983. If you're looking to read more about this case, I recommend the book that I started with way back in high school, The Michigan Murders by Edward Keyes. It is a fictionalized account of the case. There is also the more recently written Terror in Ypsilanti by Gregory Fournier. That is also a very good book and worth reading. As of this writing, John Norman Collins is 75 years old and resides at the G. Robert Cotton Correctional Facility in Jackson, Michigan. He continues to protest his innocence, as demonstrated here. John, did you kill Karen Subineman? No, I never met Karen Subineman. I never picked her up on my bike. Never took her to my uncle's house. Doesn't it bother you being called a serial killer? Yes, it does. It's bad enough being convicted of one thing that you didn't do without being labeled for something that you haven't done. See, I think what happened was, after I was arrested, he said, and the police were who would uh, candidly not have their name 
mentioned in the article would say things like, you know, well, we don't, we can't prove that he did it, but we know he did it. And the media has picked up on this for 19 years. And all it did was take the monkey off of their back and put the monkey on my back. Special thanks to the Ann Arbor Public Library and their old news section, which is available online. They have preserved much of the original coverage of this case. A resource list for this series is available upon request. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. Be safe.